Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to the Lockbox Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Broger. I'll be your host. And today we have with us Chris Miles. Chris, thanks for being with us. Hey, it's such a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Absolutely. Well, appreciate you taking some time out of your day. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? Yep. So obviously you already announced who I am, but uh, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon area, uh, but I moved out to Utah about 22 years ago to finish up my schooling. A funny story, I was majoring in sociology, but I had a triple minor in psychology, Japanese, and ballroom dancing. So little known fact, I was one of the nation's top amateur ballroom dancers and uh, did that. We even danced on like the world championship team and, and that sort of thing. So, wow. so yeah, I moved out here primarily because the two best universities were both in Utah. And uh, then I ended up getting married and having a bunch of kids. And I've been stuck here ever since, you know, other than the winters <laughs> where I go snowbird each winter to get away from the, the cold, right? Right. Very good. And that's interesting. So you have what, a home in Phoenix or something like that? No, I just Airbnb or, you know, VRBO, okay. just you know, anywhere we want to go. So we did do Phoenix last year. Um, you know, after that, we, we did like Florida this year. We've done Hawaii, California, Texas, like just, you know, anywhere pretty much warmer at South. Uh, we may even start to go international once things clear up a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's just really just a getaway to explore somewhere different in the country each, each year. No, absolutely. And that's a very interesting background that actually answered uh, one of my later questions, which right. is about like, you know, an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you like to do. And so you mentioned dancing, you mentioned, was it Japanese culture or Japanese language? What was the Japanese, Japanese language? Word? Yeah. Japanese language. Yeah. yeah so in Japan for a couple of years. So yeah. Amazing. Uh, I had a trip canceled. We were going to go there during COVID, ended up canceling, you know, not the worst thing to happen during COVID uh, in the world, but uh, definitely was something I was really looking forward to. Uh, my fiance yeah. and I were going to go to Japan, eat sushi and, and just experience uh, culture. And yeah, missed that. We'll be back, but that's really cool. So take me let with me ask you. you this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't want to be that third wheel. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can bring your wife. Um, there you go. What got you into the industry that you're in now? And also, you know, this is a real estate podcast. So how does it relate to real estate? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because whatever you try to plan on in your life and you think you've got it all mapped out, it's amazing how life will take you a different course. Right. And that was true for me. So I was in college, I was in my senior year and, uh, you know, and I was, I was kind of at the point where I wanted to become a business consultant. So I knew I was going to go get an MBA. You know, I was a sociology major because a lot of sociology majors go into HR or business or something of that nature. Well, I want to be a business consultant, but I thought, well, I don't want to just be someone with a degree. I want to be someone who actually has real life experience in the business world. So I actually took a hiatus from my schooling. I, I actually quit with one project left to go to get my bachelor's, right? Um, I just dropped out. I said, you know, I'll, I'll be back. And I went to try to find where I'd go to be an entrepreneur. The first thing that opened up to me was becoming a financial advisor, right? Like the mainstream traditional person you meet, this AKA salesman in a suit, right? I went that route and I thought it'd be hard. I thought you had to have a finance degree or some financial background. I didn't realize all you had to do is pass a test and, uh, you know, and basically have a heartbeat and you can be there. 
So a little like real estate in a way where, I mean, now granted real estate, you got to take way more classes. There's way bigger barrier of entry to get into. I mean, just if you were back off the half of entry, it's like being a financial advisor, right? Right. <laughs> way easier. And, and yeah. so I did that. And the thing is, I loved being an entrepreneur because I want to control my time. I want to control my, you know, my money, the, really my destiny, you know, to be able to create. So I ended up staying dropped out of college, never went back. Mm-hmm. And I was that traditional mainstream real, you know, financial advisor for about four years. And I started about the time of of the whole 9-11, you know, so right, perfect time to be in the stock market when things are crashing, right? So I did that for four years. But it's interesting because after those four years, I realized, like, I like evidence. I like to know that things work, you know, and I, I don't like to just get my head down and be focused on one thing. I like to see the big picture. And I started to realize that when I inherited clients from advisors that had decades of experience, nobody was financially free. Mm. And it actually took a friend of mine who actually left my industry to go do real estate investing himself. He actually went and partnered with his dad, do some deals in 2005. And I went to give him a call for, you know, like a little Merry Christmas and Happy New Year 2006. And uh, I call him up thinking he's probably broke. You know, he probably tried to do the real estate thing, didn't work out. It was the exact opposite. He's like, Chris, man, we are doing awesome right now. And he's like, in fact, my dad has doubled his income for being a professor at the local university. I was like, wait, you've only been doing it for four months. How is that possible? Wait a minute. That's too good to be true, right? As everybody right. loves to accuse people in the real estate world, you know, like, oh, it's not that good. He's like, no, I'm serious. Like, it's amazing what's going on right now. And so we got in this debate about what's better, stocks or real estate, stocks or real estate, right? And finally, he stopped me. He said, Chris, how many of your clients are financially free where they don't worry about money? And I thought about even the ones that were retired, like retired physicians, and they're watching CNN. If you watch CNN, you can never be financially free, right? Because you're just scared all the time if you watch CNN. So I'm like, well, none of them. They're all kind of scared. They're all worried about running out of money, even though they're not even in the stock market sometimes. Right. He said, well, good job, Chris. Way to not help people. <laughs> He's like, all right, <laughs> how about this, Chris? Like this, if anybody's got this figured out, it should be you guys as financial advisors. So how many of you guys, including the guys that I know work in your company since the late 70s, how many of you are financially free not off the commissions you're earning, but actually doing the investing you've been recommending. And I thought about it. I'm like, none? Maybe one guy is in our office. Found out later, he wasn't either. He got laid off and he was scrambling for work. He was all, as they say in Texas, all hat, no cattle, right? And right. Uh, so- So let me stop you there really, really quick. So yeah. to recap that, you were not only studying- being a financial advisor, you were an active financial advisor for four years. You seemed like a very sharp guy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you did very well. And the products that you were selling and the wealth that you were putting into these products that you got to see grow over that four-year period and the, all the clients you had, still no one or very few, maybe one or two were truly financially free. And exactly. financially free to me means that the income from my assets that is produced on a residual basis, taking zero of my energy, exceeds the expenses from living my ideal life. Not just my, you know, bare minimum expenses. Bare minimum. Yeah. That's financially independent, right? Yes. But not financially free. None of them were financially free. And then you had this, was it a colleague that brought this to you? The the real estate aspect? Okay. Yeah. I actually trained him to be a financial advisor, but then he quit to go do real estate investing. And that's when we were talking four months later when I thought he'd be begging for work. (laughs) The exact opposite. I started begging him to figure out how the heck to do it. 
<laughs> all right. All right. Awesome. Please continue. Yeah. So that's where we were. I mean, when you think about like the financial advisors are kind of like, you know, the ones that aren't financially free themselves, right? Because they can't retire off their investments either. This would be yeah. like the same kind of integrity question you'd say of, you know, I'm a realtor, but I don't own any real estate, right? It'd be like, right. yeah, you should buy real estate, but I don't own any, but you should, you know, but I rent the same yeah. you know, disconnect, right? And even, and even financial advisors that might invest in their, their mutual funds, the thing is they haven't figured out how to get it to make them free, you know, and and I know there's plenty of realtors out there and real estate agents that are making bank, not just from the business side, but even from the investment side too, you know, and, and that's where you should be. And so I, I saw that, that discrepancy there, right? And so I told him, I said, all right, well, tell me the answer. How do I make this work? He's like, well, I honestly don't think you're open to it. So I'm not even going to say anything. I said, come on, you got me to admit that, you know, this doesn't work. You know, like that's pretty big considering this is my paycheck we're talking about here. He's like, all right, well, if you're really open, go get this book by Robert Kiyosaki called Who Took My Money, which is a lesser known Rich Dad series book, right? Mm. Um, to sum it up in a couple of words, it says mutual funds suck. So that's pretty much it. You know, why mutual funds don't work. So I got that book. And then he said, and now listen to this AM radio show that has these two real estate investors. This is pre-podcast era, right? This is mid 2000s. So um, they're doing an AM radio show, these two real estate investors talking about how they became financially free in their 20s and 30s, you know? Mm. And it was fascinating because they wouldn't even teach strategy. They would only talk about principles, like the mindset piece of it, because that was the part that most people were run into a barrier, right? Like you get over the whole mindset piece and everything else, everything else just makes sense. Yeah. And so You're after touching a couple on something months, really uh -huh. important. I, I just want to touch on that. Tony Robbins says success is 80% mindset, 20% mechanics. Yes. And I've experienced that to be so true. When your why is so big, you can overcome any how. And so if you have the proper mindset, you're very clear on the why, you're very clear on the fact that this is the way, you have that tenacity, now you're going to figure it out. You don't even necessarily need a mentor, although mentors will save you time, right? Yeah. So you either pay in minutes or mentors. So <laughs> go ahead. That's right. Yeah. So that's, and that's what happened. Like I got to the point where after a couple of months, I said, you know, I can't be in integrity and teach this stuff anymore. I actually stopped attending all the trainings. The funny thing is my financial advisor business boomed while I didn't go to the trainings, right? When I was mm -hmm. trying to learn something different, I started to attract people in different ways. So like you said, the mindset's 80% at least because just by my energy shifting, right? Just by getting excited, yeah. realizing, wait a minute, like here's a key difference, for example, right? So say that you happen to save up a crap load of money in the market. And, and by the way, the stock market, the thing that's wrong with it is that the real rate of return on the market is not the average return they keep telling you, like the actual yield, right? Because for example, you know, if the market, if you have $100,000 in the stock market, it crashes 50%, you have 50,000 bucks. Now I used to think, well, if I want to get back to zero, I need to make 50%. But if you have $50,000, whoops, got a little excited there. You got $50,000, right? And you make 50% on it, you only made 25 grand. You're only up to 75,000. You haven't broke even. You have to make 100% to break even. Yep. You have to double that half, right? Well, that average rate of return for those two years, if you doubled, you know, you lost half and then doubled is 25% a year, even though your actual yield is zero. Now, with mutual funds and things like that, the stock market, the S&P 500, as of this last week, has only averaged about 8.3%. And just, you know, historically, that's high because we've had 12 up years in a row, right? So, the stock market is already, you know, they already predict it's 240% overvalue, 249% overvalue from what it is. That means it could drop 60% to get back to normal, right? That kind of stuff. So we've really seen a, an average of 15.5% return for the last 12 years. That's not the actual average, usually 7 to 
So the pendulum's got to keep swinging. It's got to come back into balance, right? Well, when I realized it was only maybe seven or eight percent, and that's before fees come out, I started looking at the numbers. I said, wow, you can't ever really save enough. And inflation is actually higher than what they say, because come on, 2% a year is an inflation rate. I mean, that well, means that especially doubles once every 36 years. That means that your lifestyle should have only doubled since 1985. Like that's yeah. stupid. Even 3%. I mean, that's, that rule of 72 is now 24 years. We'll go back 24 years. That still puts us in the 90s. It's way more than double the lifestyle. And real estate's way more, which usually real estate keeps up with inflation, is way more than double. From Not 20 to mention that trillions of dollars in freshly printed money has been distributed as uh-huh. three stimulus packages now, which yeah. guess what? Deflates the buying power of a dollar, which leads to inflation, right? So That's right. in the recent year, we've increased the inflation massively. I mean, the paycheck that we're going to have to put out, I, there was an estimate that for that you know, $600 like first stimulus or whatever it was, mm-hmm. we would then pay $16,000 in buying power per person because of the newly printed currency that's in the market and the increased inflation. Yeah. It's a pretty steep price to pay. So with that being said, real estate became the clear choice because it's a very forgiving investment. It Mm -hmm. not only creates cash flow instantly, but also you accrue equity over time because people are paying your rent, right? And mm-hmm. then even if, you know, the person is evicted or it's vacant for six months and, you know, you have to pay that mortgage yourself, well, you're still essentially paying yourself. You're putting money into savings, less, of course, the interest for the mortgage. But yeah. are those the reasons why you believe it's such an amazing asset or are there some other ones as well? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a big one, right? Because that's the thing that woke me up because as a financial advisor, I was used to trying to live off less than the interest. Because you remember, like people used to say the 4% rule. So whatever you save up in the market, you live on 4%. Well, that's an old number. That's an antiquated number before rates had dropped in bond markets and things like that when you're trying to retire. Really, you should only be living on 2 or 3%. So to give you an example, I have a, I have a client in Washington that? State, you know, where he's got a million dollars saved up, but he max funded his 401k for years. Now he can retire. That million bucks, if you live on only 2 or 3% a year, that's 20 or 30,000 a year. I mean, think of it. He's a millionaire living below the poverty line, <laughs> trying to do it with the mutual funds, right? But instead, we're looking at putting him things like, hey, let's buy turnkey real estate where you don't have to manage it. You've got your own landlords and stuff doing it for you. It's out of state, which is a new thing for him. He's like, why not Washington State? I'm like, you know, the laws in Washington State, they're horrible. Everything in the West Coast is horrible, right? You know, you don't want to be a landlord in those states. But you look out east, you know, southeast, midwest, even some of the central states, like maybe Oklahoma and places like that, there's low prices with high rent. There's a much mm-hmm. better return. You can get at least a 10 to 12% cash on cash return on your investment. So even if you only made 10% on that million bucks, that's 100,000 a year versus maybe 30,000 a year if you're lucky in the market, and, uh, which is a huge epiphany. And that's what happened to me as a, as a financial advisor. I was like, wait a minute, it's not about the returns and, and, all that, and live off the interest. It's about creating real, stable, predictable income. And so income producing assets, income producing assets. That's right. You know, something that has real value. And it's so funny. I mean, I know you guys hear it all the time because I hear it too. People are like, yeah, but real estate isn't in a bubble right now. I was like, do you understand that we are underbuilding? We've been underbuilding for over a decade. We haven't kept up with demand. Lumber prices have tripled in the last 12 months. 
There is no freaking way, at least short term, you're going to see a drop in prices. Now, we might see a leveling off finally, right? Especially if they raise interest rates and do things to slow it down. But for the most part, we're not even close to a bubble in the real estate space. Yeah. Stock market. The choir here. My listeners are in it every day. They're saying that to their clients. And what I'm thinking they would be saying at this point in the episode is, of course, real estate's the best investment ever. That's why I do it every day. My question with this in regards to financial savviness is Mm -hmm. what about asset allocation? If you are all in on one asset class and that asset class drops and there Mm -hmm. is eventually a bubble, you go all in in real estate for the next 10 years and then it pops, well, what then, right? So I'm curious, even though you are very convinced that real estate investment is, you know, phenomenal, probably the best investment that one can make, what else can say top 1% real estate brokers or mortgage brokers out there that are sitting on a lot of cash, they do already have a lot of properties, how can they diversify? What other things could they be doing? We can definitely look at different things like funds, you can look at syndications, you know, you can you can even look into oil and gas, although that's a little bit iffy, that's a little bit more speculative. I mean, but there are lots of ways to invest in different things. So I'll give you an example, like I love turnkey real estate, that's my number one favorite. I like buying okay. single family, maybe even like duplexes, fourplexes. But, you know, I also have money in syndicated apartment deals, you know, like, and you can have them in different markets because so many people think it has to be in their backyard. And that's just not the case. In fact, in many cases, your backyard suck, you know, (laughs) especially if you're on the Western half of the United States, your backyard is horrible. You shouldn't really, unless you've got a steal of a deal, that's not the place to be. So, you know, again, you can still keep a lot of money in your own properties, right? I think that's awesome. But you can definitely look outside of it. You know, there's there's other places like funds where they might say, hey, we're lending it out to different real estate investors or we're doing other things like mortgage-backed type of investments. And you can make 10, 11% a year on those things. Like I said, there's syndications. Um, oil and gas is another one potentially where you might do a syndication on that. You know, there's lots of ways to diversify. But the thing is you can diversify among real estate class, right? Right. Like your business is already an asset class in and of itself. So that's great. Yep. You know, but uh, I even have people diversifying where they might be doing self-storage right? Or doing assisted living, especially as they see the baby boomer generation rising. There's a possibility there. Here's the key thing. You can diversify in those different places. Make sure you have a syndicator that one has got great experience, like many years doing that kind of thing. And then two, also make sure that they have good character because even Mm -hmm. if the investment's okay, still when stress gets high, the real question is, are they going to fulfill on their commitments, right? Like I have one friend that he he buys up apartments and and I this is my mantra. I think boring is sexy, right? The thing that somebody does so often they can do it with their eyes closed, that is the best deal, right? And so yep. this guy does deals where it's mostly in the southeast, but he's buying apartment buildings, but they're all the same criteria. They have to meet like this 10-step criteria for him to say, I'm gonna put an offer on that deal. That's a minority of deals he sees come across his desk. But when he does it, since 2003, he has always paid his investors, even through two recessions previously, and now into a third recession. He has always paid his investors. That's something that you can't really find on a pro forma sheet. You know, That's not right. something you can always see. It's something that is, comes from within that person. And then those are the kind of people that, you know, especially as they get to know them more and more, I could say, you know what, whatever the deal is, I know if it's your typical deal, not that like you're not trying to buy a coffee farm you know, or some or a marijuana farm or something like that you've never done before. But if it's your typical stuff, you can do that. And I can trust you with that money and you're going to get me my money back at least because return of your principal is more important than a return on your principal. Yes. And real estate is so much more secure than a stock, 
or throwing cash on an option where it could go to zero. Yeah. Right. Despite a uh, natural disaster and not having insurance on your property, pretty much it's going to have value. And as long as you're not over leveraged and you have to sell it to liquidate and pay off other things, you're going to be fine. My question is, what's your suggested loan to value ratio for your clients that they don't want to under leverage their assets and have too much cash in one property for no reason. Sure. But they also don't want to be over leveraged and mm. be, you know, 90, 10 on everything and then it drops <laughs> and they're in a tough spot. Right. So what's your suggested loan to value? And of course, disclaimer, like, you know, everyone out there, this is not meant to be legal or financial advice. Right. Everyone's situation is different. Take this with a grain of salt. But you know, can you give any type of ratio that would be a good standard for, okay, this is a good way to yield your wealth and, and, and yield returns on that wealth, but not over leverage it? Yeah. I mean, when I talk about like doing turnkey properties, for example, right? And, you know, getting a 10, 12% or higher return, cash return, it's really only putting like a 20 or 25% down. You know, that's typically what I like to do. I don't like to put a lot of money down. If you have to put a lot of money down to be profitable, then it's not worth it, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. I just got done talking to somebody in California, they had to put you know 35% down to actually positive <laughs> cash flow. That's horrible, right? In fact, the guy said, yeah, you know, I even have a property that's worth 300,000 and I make 1200 bucks a month profit. I'm like, that's horrible. You can make at least double that in another market, you know? And, and that's why I think it's so important is that the down payment I like to do as little as possible, um, but I'm not talking about like 0% down. I, I think that's a little bit too risky. But if you can do 10%, if you can get away with it, great. But I mean, most of us doing this traditional mortgages, if you're not borrowing from other people, you're not doing hard money loans, you're just doing traditional banking, you know, the 20 to 25% is usually plenty, should be plenty down for you to net profit a good gain. And if you're not, that's not the right deal for you. Mm, Interesting. So in regards to that, I have heard that commercial investments, you do need to put additional down and you have to have additional money in the bank for the first few months of, of rent or repairs. So yeah. do you have any insight into that? I had a, a colleague who just bought two fourplexes in Texas, mm-hmm. paid somewhere around 400 for it. And he initially went in with a conventional loan, 20%. He thought that was enough, but then they came back and they said he did have to put something like 30% down because it was a commercial. It it was five units plus, right? So do you have any insight into that? It depends on the lender. Usually it's 25% down for like a fourplex like that. And that's very, very typical, 25% down. 30%, it might've been because there's additional uh, requirements for his situation. Either it's the lender themselves because lenders are getting really crazy with trying to buy investment properties currently. I mean, the rates skyrocketed from March to April to the point where I've kind of backed off a little bit of my purchasing on properties right now and definitely not refinancing properties because the rates just skyrocketed on those things. So I'm waiting for those to settle back down before I get more active again. But yeah, 25% is usually enough. You definitely want to have good liquid reserves. You essentially want to look sexy to any bank, right? I actually keep a ton of my reserves inside my life insurance policy because it can actually still earn tax-free returns, but it counts as a liquid asset. So I, I'll keep money in there and I've got a line of credit I can get against it at three and a quarter percent, but it's paying me almost six, you know? Mm. So I'll do that. And then just send them that statement saying, here you go. It's in there. And they're like, okay, check, done, right? And, and credit scores obviously make a difference, but credit scores, I mean, even though they are getting stricter and they're moving up the benchmark again. So it's interesting how this is opposite of 2006, right? Because now they're getting stricter on the lending guidelines, even more so than they were 
you know, 2006, you know, when there was a bubble, you know, so it just depends. It depends, but I think you should be able to get away with 25% down. Just make sure you have good solid reserves that you're not moving around. You're not trying to use every dollar to put down on that property because that that is risky. You want to have reserves in place. Um, I think for four doors, you should have at least 10 to 15 grand just sitting there in an account, you know, at least that much. If you're just buying a single door, you can get away with 3,000, two doors, 5,000. You know, that's kind of my general rule of thumb for reserves in case there's, you know, vacancies or in case there's maintenance. But again, if you buy it rent ready, you don't have to put more money in it. You know, that's the kind of reserves I would keep. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I know that a lot of the listeners to the podcast are mostly residential. They might have a a few commercial deals. Uh, Myself, I'm a commercial agent. And so I focus specifically on multifamily, five units and above and other types of commercial properties. So I do like to shed light on that because multifamily is such an amazing investment today. And the single family flips and the single family investments, the cap rates are just so compressed. Mm-hmm. To, the, to the maximum in California, especially, but, yeah. uh, you know, in, in so many other states, HGTV has made it out like everyone can just go flip a house and make 60 grand. So, And there's you know, the opportunity because you're going to have a lot of people falling flat on their face and that's the deals you want to pick up, you know? Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the point is there's just so much competition in that space, but, yeah. you know, the multifamily and then some of the other more creative ways to maybe convert like an extended stay hotel into a multifamily yeah. or things like that. Those are some really cool opportunities I like to shed light on. Yeah, there's a lot more going to the, like the affordable housing arena, right? With this old hotels or motels where they're trying to convert them over to make them into apartments now. And there's lots of cool things that can be happening if you're always forward thinking, saying, all right, where's the need? Where can I create value for people? And where that's do I solve question. problems? And that's if you yeah. always have that mindset of how can I serve and solve problems? And that works in business, that works in real estate, it works everywhere. If you always have that mindset, it's so easy to find opportunities. It, there's an abundance of it. Heck, I'm even right now, um, I'm actually partnering with a guy that does land flipping, right? Land and seller financing and stuff like that. I know a guy like, does hey. land flipping in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, cool. I, I it's think super boring. <laughs> totally boring. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do it. I even told him three years ago, I said, if you ever do a partnership opportunity where I can be passive, I can just finance it, let me know. And he finally did. I said, great. Like, I'm in. Like, this is awesome. But uh, I would want to do it myself, but I'm glad he does. Yeah. I know a guy for that too. He's great. I was actually on a talk show with him, Real Men of Real Estate. It was a a national talk show on like Amazon Fire Stick TV and a bunch of other things. I think it aired on NBC once or twice, but yeah, he's he's great. He teaches construction management uh, in San Diego and he does land flips. And it's so interesting because once again, talking about competition, there's like no yeah. competition in that. And oh. the the returns as a passive investor are amazing. They have like 18 month to 24 month turnarounds and you get tied into, you know, the, the overall exit strategy based on your initial investment percentage of the total deal. It's awesome. So yeah, I have someone like that in San Diego as well. And and it's something that you would never think of. It's like mm-hmm. you would have had to have just been in construction and then like known this thing and then developed it over 20 years, which is like what this guy's done. You know, he he's yeah. the guy who could do it in his sleep. He's the the person that, you know, hey, it's not sexy. We're going to go <laughs> look at this land in a pro growth area. We're going mm-hmm. to level it, have it zoned and sell it. And yeah. it's going to take about 18 months. You're going to make X, right? And it's like, right. that's before all the cosmetics and the paint and the cute <laughs> stuff is there, but like in and out done. Yeah. And he already knows everyone at the city to get it approved fast, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, he's just got this machine going. 
And if you can then just like help essentially provide capital to that existing machine, you know, with it, almost no one else, it's like he's in this blue ocean where there are no other sharks feeding and he's like this lone shark that you can just help support. It's awesome to find those things. It's true. I mean, like a national mastermind out of 150 people in that mastermind group, most of them are wholesalers and flippers. Only one partnership is actually doing land, just one, yeah. you know, and and even then there's a very small shop. They're, they just got enough they can, they can do with their own their own resources, but it's such a not a competitive space. And when you factor in that houses don't appreciate, right? Like houses depreciate, which is why we get the tax benefit. It's just the land, you know? And, and on top of that, where we have such a demand for land right now, like I'm begging builders to find me land and they're trying to beg farmers to sell them land right now, just so I can go build a new house, you know, to live in, but it's so hard to find that. And, and now we've got additional demand for land, right? Because we've got you know, not just developers, but we've got people that are preppers, you know, people that want to just be off the grid or have their own place to go hunting and shooting. I mean, there's so many places around the country that people say, I want this, or I want a place that I can have a water running through my property that if water supply goes crazy or something like that, like all the doom and gloom stuff, there's more demand for it than even just farmers trying to buy their neighbors, which is what it used to be. Now there's people mm. all want to gobble up land. And like you said, almost nobody is offering something like that. Right. And there's only so much land. Yeah, exactly. It's only so much land. So I'm curious, what is the single most important action you take on a daily basis that has attributed most to your success? You've already mentioned a, a lot of good tips, focusing on value, you know, things like that. But yeah. you know, this podcast in particular, I like to focus on actions and whether you're a real estate professional or an entrepreneur, both are pretty much one and the same in needing to focus, plan, execute on income producing activities. And so, yeah. you know, what is like the number one most important income producing activity that you focus on every day? Oh, that's a different question I was going to answer initially when you said number one. Oh, the actions. Habit. Yeah. Yeah. As a okay. success habit, like, you know, like you mentioned Tony Robbins, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, like I do morning routines and that's huge, like getting your mind in the right space. But income producing activity, this is case by case for everybody. I would recommend reading a book called The Pumpkin Plan by Mike Michalowicz. Uh, he's the awesome. same guy that wrote the book Profit First. You've heard of that book. Yeah, um, I have. You know, I actually, that shifted my life in about 2015 because I was, I was going through a divorce. It was kind of like this identity crisis of, hey, what do I do? Do I, do I want to quit my business? Because like, I just wanted to quit life. You know, like I was so depressed during that period of time. And I remember I came across that book and you know, he talks about those prize-winning pumpkins that they grow humongous that you see on the news, right? Like those pumpkins are a specific breed. You have to buy the seeds from Nova Scotia for like a hundred grand. And then you hope it actually produces a nice pumpkin, right? And what the farmers do is as the vine grows, the pumpkins, they start chopping off the little runs until they get to one big pumpkin that's, you know, that the one vine is feeding that one pumpkin. And mm. business is no different. And for me, like this was 2015, I realized I was doing a lot of live speaking, you know, traveling around the country, doing stuff like that. I was doing my podcast. I was on interviews like this. And, but I realized, I said, you know, I'm not happy. And, and really, what's my most productive? So what's that top, you know, that Pareto's principle? What's the top 20% that creates 80%? I took it one step further. I said, what's my top 20% of my top 20%? Or in other words, what's my top 4% that creates my 96% of business? Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up having clients. And I looked at my clients like, who is my absolute star client? Focus on that person only. So the rest of them, I love them, but I'm not attracting those people anymore. Um, I started focusing on the, just the right activities. So I started focusing more on podcasts. I started cutting off live speaking almost all together, which by the way, for COVID was easy to pivot because I didn't have to pivot. <laughs> I wasn't live speaking. So I was just doing stuff like this behind the mic and um, it made it so much easier. My business doubled the next year, but that's the revenue. But my profit 
about 5X the next year. So I quintupled wow. my profit the next year. And now like my profit's like about 20X of what it was from 2015 with revenue almost 10 times that. So that's the thing is that when you start to really hone in on what's really necessary, that pumpkin plan book was like the hugest moneymaker for me for just a cheap little book. Yeah, that's a very interesting analogy of not only having the right seed, which mm-hmm. I would incorporate as the business model or idea, yeah. right? So that $100,000 pumpkin seed from Nova Scotia, but then mm-hmm. along the way you have to optimize. Optimize, especially from a digital marketing background, when you hear someone say, I optimized a Facebook ad, what <laughs> that means is highest and best use. Yes. That means that if I have a budget of $1,500 per month for my client and there are five different audiences that we're testing and one of the audiences is generating $5 buyer leads and the other audiences are generating 10, 15, 20, $17 buyer leads. Well, if I don't kill those four that are underperforming, mm-hmm. they're going to eat up that $1,500 budget and we'll get lo- less leads that month. Yeah. Right? And so I kill those and now it's optimized. It's like chopping off those yeah. small pumpkins. And now that $1,500 budget is pumping to that one audience that's converting best for that client in that market. Yeah, and you watch for those it, diminishing returns and you're like, oh, yes. cut off before it diminishes too much, right? And so that's a like short daily process that you know my team members are going through on a daily basis with our clients. But yeah. that same analogy for business in general, you give yeah. something a shot for a year and you then have to then sit back, analyze, either write down or just really thoughtfully question, is this the highest and best use of my time, money, and energy to get to where this business is actually going? And it goes back to that start, stop, continue methodology. I believe Gary Keller uh, introduced it or or, Mm -hmm. uh, repurposed it, but it's a great methodology of, hey, what every periodically, maybe quarterly or, you know, annually, what campaigns, objectives, ideas, or systems do I need to start, Mm -hmm. stop, and continue. And, right. you know, having that period of reflection so that you can focus and optimize down to this is my most valuable thing. This is my most valuable marketing initiative. This is my most valuable, uh, you know, team member. Yeah. So, it's it's such an important principle. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. So true. It's, it's vital. You got to have it. And it works with money. It works with your time and your business. It, it works everywhere. And it's honestly hard to do. I've understood the Pareto principle for probably 10 years. Mm-hmm. And despite that, I find myself at times falling into the habit or maybe it's just the laziness of, oh, I'm already, you know, I've already done that. I've already, you know, kind of optimized things. But really it is an action that needs to be taken consistently. It's like, yeah. you got to just put it in your calendar, like reflection. Mm-hmm. What needs to start? What needs to stop? What needs to continue? Because it's so easy to just kind of like rest on your laurels and think yeah. everything's working as best as it could possibly work. But I'm an innovator. And so yeah. I'm always trying, like, that's just naturally in me. I, I just always trying to like, how can we do it better? Yeah. And, how do you build uh, a better mousetrap, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Exactly. In the same way. Yeah. I love that. I'm curious about your entrepreneurial journey. So mm-hmm. it's easy to listen to this podcast and think, oh, Chris had it figured out from the beginning, you know, very clear path. But in reality, the path to success often has squiggles and setbacks and all kinds of different things. So oh, yeah. how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite yeah. failure of yours? Oh, I've got several to choose from, but uh, you know, if I pick one, um, so you know, 2006, I was actually become I became financially independent, right? I could retire, quote unquote, for the first time, and so money was abundant, just like air. 
And uh, so I was kind of like wondering what to do because I was 28 years old. I'm like, well, what am I going to be when I grow up? And I knew it was something like teaching. I love teaching, right? I love inspiring and giving hope. Well, 2007 comes around. There's some guys who are just like me, financially independent, said, hey, let's create a company. Let's teach people how to get out of the rat race. You know, just like basically, how's the rubber hit the road with like Kiyosaki? Now, they were, the funny thing is, they were very philosophical, right? But the funny thing is, our market were mostly real estate investors back then. So, Everybody we we're talking to were real estate investors, and they they weren't the good kind in of real 2007. estate. Two thousand seven. Yes, they were the gambling kind, the ones that were banking on appreciation, right? Plus, my own life, I wasn't tracking my money. I was getting sloppy. Um, I also thought I was doing everything right, so I was doing the same thing. Like, hey, I could buy a hundred thousand dollar house, but I make ten percent. That's you know ten thousand bucks. But if I buy a half million dollar house, make ten percent, that's fifty thousand. So let's go big or go home. Well, I end up going home and losing my home by two thousand nine. I was wow. foreclosing on my dream house and stuff, right? You know, where they bought it at the, the uh, they actually bought it at auction. The guy said, hey, I bought your house at auction a half hour ago. I bought it in cash. Can you get out? And I said, um, we're about to have a baby next week. We're about to have our fourth child. Can we uh, work something out? So we paid them 2000 bucks to stay there for two weeks, you know, and all that wow. kind of stuff was happening. Like it just hit the fan. So I went from like millionaire to upside down millionaire in just a couple of years, right? Where uh, by 2009, I was, I was over a million dollars in debt. Didn't file for bankruptcy because I'm just stubborn, right? Yeah, but I, I did work on trying to dig out of that hole. And here's what's interesting. I stopped teaching people about 2008. I stopped teaching about getting out of the rat race because I was back in it. How could I teach something I, I can't, you know, I'm not practicing, you know? So I started teaching people what I was doing, which was getting resourceful, finding money, right? And, uh, and people would tell me, they say all the time during the recession, they say, Chris, I, I wish I could pay you. I just don't have the money. I can't find the money for it. And I said, well, if I can find the money for you, would you pay me? I said, well, yeah, of course. I said, great. Now, I wouldn't tell him at the time. I wouldn't say, hey, I'm over a million dollars in debt. I'm flat broke. Let me show you how to do this, right? But that's what I was thinking in the back of my mind. I'm like, these guys are in a better position than I'm in. This is hopeful than compared to my own situation. So I'd help them find money, like how to get creative, how to get money, and then use that to either pay off debts or save or whatever it might be, right? Um, on average, I end up showing people how to free up about 34000 a year. And as a result, people were paying and, and our business boomed about 2009 to 2010. And it just created this whole new business, right? Out of this would have been crippling. And trust me, like there was mornings that I woke up just panicked, wondering how am I going to get out of this mess? What am I going to do? Right. Uh, even my wife at that time, now my ex-wife, she was saying things like, hey, maybe I should take the kids and move in with my sister so you can figure stuff out. I wish I'm like, no, that's the worst thing to do is take away my support, Right. I mean, it was just miserable. I was even on, on freaking welfare, you know, like I'm the guy that's supposed to have it all figured out and I'm on welfare, right? I mean, how mm. imagine this the head trip that I was going through, but again, just not giving up, just persistently going each day, one step at a time. Heck, even despite all the collector calls saying that I'm a horrible human being because I have debt and everything and I haven't paid them. I was like, Hey, I'll pay you back. I just can't tell you when, you know, and, but just keep for, you know, progressing forward. I eventually did pay everybody back, you know, and Again, by 2016, I was out of the rat race again, this time much wiser and better of an investor than I was the first time around. Absolutely. Wow. What a learning experience, a 10-year journey pretty much uh, yeah. from going top of the world, 2007, making all these moves, 2009, and then losing it all. And then 2016, you know, seven years after that, being better because of it, but having yeah. gone through a treacherous journey uh, and myself... I mentioned like I'm stubborn too. Mm -hmm. I've been through multiple phases where, you know, I'm trying to bootstrap my businesses and yeah. putting ad spend on credit cards and, uh -huh. you know, 
like paying my contractors and employees and then like I'm living on credit cards and like just mm-hmm. just basically racking things up because my business didn't show enough income to get a conventional loan and get right. capital. And so I had to just make it happen. Yeah. And through that process, there is the option, oh, just go BK, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of people have done that and it was the best solution for them at that time. Right. But for me, I am way too stubborn for that. Mm-hmm. And so it just, when I get in those situations, I just dig my heels in, you know, pull on my grit that I was born with and just persist through to no end until every single person is paid back and I'm back in the black. So exactly. I can totally resonate with that. And also then you do learn and you develop credibility and you develop a new network and more relationships from that because, you know, rather than going BK and just like, okay, Mm -hmm. now start over. You had to get so creative and work so Mm -hmm. hard to then pay everything back and get there. Well, now you're not only in a stronger place with your network and your income and everything that you've built to get to there, right? Mm -hmm. But you also are wiser because of it. Absolutely. I see that as like the biggest benefit and payoff of paying that extra interest over those years that I didn't need to be paying necessarily (laughs) if I went maybe a different route. But at the end of the day, I learned so much. And now it's like, fingers crossed, I feel like I'll never be in that situation again because of the process that I went through. And now I can be more conservative and wise with my investments. Like that's the loan to value question, right? Not Mm -hmm. overextending, doing things more sophisticated, you know, doing different types of investments that are less competitive or, you know, not swinging for the fences every time. (laughs) That's right. Um, so that's a, that's a really great one. I appreciate you sharing that. It's true. That's the stuff that you just can't learn from books, right? You just can't learn just even listening to it. It's something you have to go through. I don't recommend people go through an experience like that, but man, when you, you know, if you can come out on the other side, you just, you're so much stronger. You're so much more resourceful, which is exactly, you know, my whole business model came from was how to be resourceful, how to find the resource. And then how do you turn it into like passive income, right? Like how do you actually create that, those cash flow goals faster? And yeah, I'm so grateful for it. Like I, I remember praying hard during those times, like, please, like, how do we get out of this? Like, I need to know. And I remember getting that peace, you know, my heart is saying, Hey, you're going to get out of this. It's just for a period of time. You know, they said it would just be a short period of time. I didn't know year and a half to two years would be considered short because it felt forever. Right. But I mean, coming through that, I remember just thinking if I could just bless one person's life going through that experience and I can inspire somebody else, that would Mm. probably make it worth it to go through. Right. But I never, never imagined that it would bless hundreds of thousands of people's lives because of that, you know, and, and counting, right? And, and that's why I think it's such an amazing opportunity with that is that, you know, that pain became everybody else's gain. Yep. I read a quote years ago. It said, you're going through your storm right now so that you can help someone else with theirs later. Yeah. And it's, it's so true. You know, when you focus on value and impact, every single failure and hardship that you've gone through in your life is now an asset. That's right. So I'm curious, talk about assets and investments. What's the most worthwhile investment you've ever made? And by the way, it can be non-financial. Yeah. I would say the the best investment I made was really kind of like what I mentioned briefly earlier, right? That that morning ritual, you know, Tony Robbins calls it the hour of power, but focusing on the three areas, right? On, you know, my doing exercise, education and enlightenment, the three E's, you know, like Every morning getting up, like I can't just try to go in enlightened state because I'll fall asleep, you know? So I wake up, I got to move my body and do something, whatever that is, like get your body moving, you know, educating yourself, right? Like listening to good books, it can be audio books, it can be these podcasts, like just doing those things to get 
the right voices in your head so that you're winning. And then enlightenment, you know, whatever you do for that, you know, if it's connecting with your source, you know, it could be connecting with God. It could be through scripture reading. It could be through prayer, through meditation or whatever that is. Like those three key factors right there for me, like doing that every single day just gets me in the right state that opportunities are just abundant, right? Yep. So that has always been my best investment. It's a time and energy investment, but that's an infinite ROI, right? Like that's the thing is like, it doesn't require any money out of pocket to do those things. But I can trace back millions and millions and millions of dollars just because of doing those consistent daily habits every day. I love that. Infinite ROI. So true. It really is. It's unquantifiable and something that has massively impacted my life, my morning routine, being consistent with it. It's an investment in yourself. And Mm -hmm. when you invest in yourself, the dividends, like you mentioned, are infinite. So I appreciate you being on here. How can listeners contact you? Yeah, two ways. I mean, obviously the easiest way you can go to my website, moneyripples.com. Um, okay. there, you, know, you can contact me through there. You can check out other educational sources and whatnot. Uh, the other way is you can also listen to my own podcast, The Chris Miles yep. Money Show, which uh, I've got on iTunes or whatever favorite podcast app you have, but definitely invite you to listen to that and learn more. Excellent. And last question, is there a question that I should have asked you or anything from earlier that you'd like to elaborate on? Boy, I don't know what kind of rabbit holes we want to go down, but... Uh, I'll just say this. Maybe I'll make it more of a teaser than a question. But the question is, is how can you double dip on your investment returns? There's a strategy I use that actually allows me to invest in real estate and make money at the same time. You know, And so many times you might have heard people talk about infinite banking, but warning, a lot of the infinite bankers out there do a crappy job. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm talking about like people that talk about trying to sell you whole life insurance. There's a lot of insurance agents that do that. Don't use the traditional crap. Don't even just go for them because they're infinite bankers. Now, there's a strategy I use that I refer to as max ROI infinite banking, where you get lowest cost possible to get double dip returns. And so I've been able to, like, if I ever do a real estate deal, it usually adds another three to 4% a year on top of the cash and cash return I'm actually earning just by using that the right way. So very interesting. And yeah. definitely I'm ent- enticed. So how can listeners find out more about that? Uh, you can actually find my YouTube channel. Um, I got two of them. There's the Money Ripples with Chris Miles that has my podcast. But then there's Chris Miles Money Ripples that has some of those educational content just around that strategy. In fact, I'm about to release a, release a new video today. So yeah, definitely check out the Chris Miles Money Ripples YouTube channel. Excellent. Chris Miles, everyone, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. And you know, you dropped some amazing knowledge, not only throughout your entrepreneurial journey, but also some really interesting investment strategies and little nuggets that I think is going to be infinitely valuable to our listener base. So thank you. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.